0: Good morning, Crossroads. How are we? Good. Anybody else come from a, a place of sickness back to health in their life? And, and you just get this renewed spirit of joy in you coming from uh, this past week. Uh, there's been a lot of sickness. I know that's gone through the, the church family. Those of us who attended camp, we somehow all caught Montezuma's revenge on the way home. And it was a rough week for many of us. Uh, But God is good, and my health has been restored, and I'm very grateful to be with you this morning to be able to open up the book of Joel again and dive into this beautiful prophetic letter from the book of Joel. Uh, Yesterday, I got the opportunity to watch a movie, and I love movies. Um, It's one of my favorite pastimes, watching a good Ron Howard flick. And so so there is a brand new Ron Howard film, if you haven't heard, it's called 13 Lives, and I do recommend it. I got the privilege of sitting down and watching it last night, and it's, it's based on a true story about a group of Thai youth soccer players that, that wandered into a tunnel after practice one day, and the monsoon rains of Thailand uh, struck unexpectedly, and they got stuck in Thailand, in a cave uh, in Thailand. And for for many days, as a matter of fact, for a couple of weeks, they were stranded inside this cave with no way out. And so this movie tells about this, this story and how um, their rescue came about. Uh, one thing that really struck me in the movie was just thinking about 10 days of darkness and despair. Imagine, you have no idea if even, anybody even knows you're there let alone like if you're still alive. And here you are stranded in a cave. They, they had a pocket of air that they were able to um, find, but it was a mile in from the entrance of the cave. And there were several passageways that had been completely flooded between them and the entrance of the cave. And so it took rescuers hours, literally like six hours, to finally reach them. And what really struck me was that, I, was that when the, the headlights on, off of these divers that came to come and find them finally surfaced, imagine the hope. Imagine how hope was restored once again, that rescue had actually found their location. Now, of course, the movie goes on, and, it, and it's quite an extraordinary effort to try and actually get them out. And I'm not going to, no spoiler alerts here. You're going to have to watch the movie for yourself. But the thing that really struck me was how we can be in such a state of despair. I imagine for 10 days, not a soul had found them. And they were stranded inside this cave and and just limited battery life, and they kind of had to preserve that. And so you ever been in a, a cave, how dark it can be when the lights go out? And they had to persevere over that course of 10 days of just despairing with no sign of rescue. And when those lights appeared from under the surface of the water, and those divers emerge and said, you're all alive, we've found you. And uh, man, the hope that must have sprang back into their souls. Hope was restored. As a matter of fact, one of the kids goes, so are we going home now? And the divers are like, it's not that easy, right? And the rest of the movie tells about how exactly they went about to try and rescue these young, young men. So we, we, we're in the book of Joel, and Joel is really about the day of the Lord. I, I've entitled the whole series The Day of Hope. Israel was in a mess during the time period of Joel, and he's writing, and, and in chapter 1 he's already described this idea of these locusts that had come and plagued the land. There was judgment that fell from God on the people because of their sin. And, and the locusts had devastated the crops, devastated the land, It was a plague so intense that there was nothing left for the people except for despair. And so there was a desire for renewed hope. And the prophet continued his letter and he continues to develop this theme of the day of the Lord and the hope that it can bring into their lives. So I want to talk a little bit about the day of the Lord this morning as we begin our our look at Joel. Joel. And so there are seven characteristics to the day of the Lord. But I'm going to start in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Because Peter spent three and a half years with Jesus. He had a lot of time to ask him a lot of questions about the day of the Lord. And he writes to us in the New Testament in the church. And he writes about the day of the Lord. And starting at uh, chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, he says this. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. And then he talks about in verse 10 and we're going to read that in a little bit, about this day of the Lord, this concept that they understood that it was a promise that was made all the way back from the Old Testament. And he begins to, to further explain what's going to take place during the day of the Lord. But let's go through the day of the Lord. There are seven things about this day. And remember, this is not just a single day. This is a time period that, that is over thousands of years. Over a large period of time. Where God is at work in the end to accomplish his goals on this earth. And number one, it begins with judgment against Jerusalem. The first marker of the day of the Lord is judgment coming against the, uh, God's own people. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It begins at home, and there are certainly judgment that is going to fall against Jerusalem. Listen to Zechariah chapter fourteen, verse one and two. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided in your presence. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. The day of the Lord begins with this concept that there's going to be a gathering against Jerusalem. And it goes on to talk about the devastation that's going to occur among God's people, the Jews. And then in, Ze- um, in uh, the second attribute of the day of the Lord is this, that tribulation will happen throughout the whole earth. It will not only be limited to what's taking place in Jerusalem, but there will be travail throughout the whole earth. Jesus, speaking of this time, in Matthew 24, verse 21, says this, For at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now, and never will again. Zephaniah picks up on this and says the great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will b- bring distress on man- mankind, and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung so it's a it 's a time of devastation on this planet like has never been seen before god 's judgment is going to fall when the day of the Lord comes that doesn 't sound very hopeful, does it and yet it is hopeful when we think about the fact that. We all desire justice, do we not? We all desire that sin and that wrongdoing be punished somehow. That people don't get to get away with their sin inevitably, forever. That there's no consequence for those that do injustice against other people. So we all clamor, we all have a desire, an intrinsic part of us that wants to see justice happen. And God, being a God of great justice, says, yes, I'm going to set things right. There will be punishment for sin. And this frames the day of the Lord. The beginning, uh, the the third part of the day of the Lord is, and this is the cool part, this is the mercy, this is the grace of God, protection for God's elect. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, Daniel is writing and he's prophesying. He's saying, at that time... Michael, the great prince, who stands watch over your people, Daniel's people being Jews, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Will escape. They won't have to go through that time of tribulation. There will be an escape for them. There will be a rescue out of that environment. Revelation chapter 3, writing to the church at Philadelphia, writing to the church, which we understand today being the church, these words are written, because you have kept my command to endure, Revelation 3, 10, I will also keep you, from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So again, the church, being God's elect, being those whose names are written in the book of La- the Lamb's book of life, are preserved or are kept from this time of great tribulation and wrath, the day of the Lord. Number four... The day of the Lord will include victory over all of God's enemies. And and in conjunction with that, I include number five, and that will happen at Jesus' return where he will reign on the earth. Listen to what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says about this time. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's something we look forward to, right? The coming of Jesus. And our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if it was from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary publicizing that he himself is God. This is a man who is an imposter, someone who's claiming to be the Messiah, but he's the false Messiah. As a matter of fact, he declares himself to be God in the sanctuary or in the temple of God. And this is a sign of things that the day of the Lord is happening. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this? And you know that what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Is rebellion against God already at work on this planet? Yes. It's been happening since the the church was founded by Jesus, way back in Acts chapter two. And it continues, and and it's being ramped up. We see it all the more like blatantly in our world, over over and over as the time has gone forward. There's a, a lack of respect for God, and more and more a we wanna be our own God mentality in our world. It's lawlessness. It's disrespect for the God of the universe. And right here, Paul is writing to the church saying, don't be surprised, that's going to happen. It's part of God's plan. And then, verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. That's the day of the Lord. The enemy of God will be defeated. The false Messiah and everybody that follows him will be punished. And there will be the coming of Jesus with his saints to rule and reign on this earth. And that rule and reign is described in Revelation as being a thousand years. It's called the millennium. uh, The sixth characteristic of the day of the Lord is a demise of Satan and all unrepentant sinners. There is a time of judgment that is to come, and it will happen during this period called the Day of the Lord, in which Satan will be, have a final judgment, and so will all those who were unrepentant in our world. Listen to Revelation chapter 20. It describes this period of time, starting at verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead... And death and Hades gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15 says, Anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The day of the Lord is a serious day. It's a day of reckoning. But it's also a day of hope. It's the day where Jesus will appear where righteousness will stand on this planet and will judge righteously. There will be justice for all. But there will also be grace and mercy for anyone who's written in this book, the book of life. The seventh characteristic of the day of the Lord is renewal of heaven and earth. Listen, I'm going to pick up Second Peter where I began talking about the day of the Lord. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God. The heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it, and the elements will melt with the heat. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. So we see, the, the, we see what the day of the Lord is in these seven characteristics, and it's not just a single day, is it? It's a period of time where God begins to say, my patience is run out, and it's time to end this thing. It's time to move into the end times and what has been established for this earth. We're on a timetable. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Only God does. But we approach it, and we approach it quickly. And the older you get, the more you feel like it's happening soon right? We see those of us who have had enough perspective, and I look to my elders on that, who have seen, even in our world, going from at least a respect for God and the things of God to where we are today. What a difference. And it's just lining up so clearly with what the Bible proclaims to be true. So the day of the Lord. Now Joel had pictured in chapter 1 this event which had already transpired among the people of Israel of his day. And again, we don't know when exactly that happened, whether it was early in, the, in Israel's history or if it was right before they were being punished and put into exile, or even if it was in, later into Nehemiah's day and the rebuilding of the temple. We don't know that the Bible doesn't put this into a specific historical context for us. But we know that there was a plague of locusts that had struck the land. And Joel said, God is trying to get your attention, people. Wake up. And then we we start to read chapter 2. Join me there. Blow the horn in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the residents of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and dense overcast, like the dawn spreading over the mountains. A great and strong people appears, such as never existed in ages past, and never will again in all the generations to come. A fire destroys in front of them, and behind them a flame devours. The land in front of them is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them it is like a desert wasteland. There is no escape from them. Their appearance is like that of horses, and they gallop like war horses. They bound on the tops of the mountains. Their sound is like the sound of chariots, like the sound of fiery flames consuming stubble, like a mighty army deployed for war. Nations writhe in horror before them. All faces turn pale. They attack as warriors attack. They scale walls as men of war do. Each goes on his own path. And they do not change their course. They do not push each other. Each man proceeds on his own path. They dodge the arrows, never stopping. They storm the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like thieves. The earth quakes before them. The sky shakes. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars cease their shining. The Lord raises his voice in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Joel is proclaiming that there's an event still to come among God's people, among Jerusalem. And it's an invasion from a foreign enemy. It's an invasion of of this army that is so massive, it's like a bunch of locusts. But they're not actual locusts now. These are actual soldiers who are like so numerous that they're like locusts in the way that they destroy and devour everything in their path. And Joel is warning that the day of the Lord has come, and a day of what? Judgment against Jerusalem. Do you remember that? That's where it all begins. We don't know for sure whether or not this was a time in Assyrians. If it was early in Israel's history, the Assyrian army, under a guy named, a general named Sennacherib, right? He came, and his exploits of how he destroyed are famous. They're actually... They're um, preserved for us outside the Bible in history. But we don't know if it was during the Assyrian time or maybe it was the Babylonian Empire that came and ransacked Jerusalem right during the exile, during Jeremiah's time. Or we don't know if it's maybe referring about Rome and what they eventually did to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. We don't know the historical timeline of this, but we know that Joel is saying there's judgment coming, and it's coming in the form of a foreign enemy to judge the sins of God's people. Now, I, wanna, I, I think about Habakkuk, and, and maybe you guys have read the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk's a prophet who lived a little bit uh, later, right before the exile, and, and what, he, what he wrote is this. He said, God, how long? How long are people, your people, going to get away with violence and with idolatry and with wickedness? Why aren't you acting? Why aren't you stepping in? Why aren't you judging? And he makes this accusation, God, you don't seem to be in control. And God answers and said, even now, I'm forming an army. And it's the army of Babylon. They're going to come against my people. And they're going to cause havoc. And they're going to judge the people for their sin. And Habakkuk, he issues a second complaint. He says, how could you use them to judge us? We're wicked. Yeah, we've done some really bad stuff, but they're even worse. So I'm gonna lodge that complaint against you to see what you have to say. And then God goes, really? You're gonna question how I work in this world? And in in Habakkuk, I want to read this for you. Habakkuk, the end of the book, Habakkuk is finally um, uh, challenged in his, his arguments against God. And uh, if I can find it here. Here it is. Habakkuk chapter 3, starting at verse 12. This is what the prophet finally realizes. You, speaking of God, march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the great waters. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must wait quietly for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, my God, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on the mountain heights. That's what the prophet realizes. That that things can look really bleak, but God is at work and God is a God not only of, of punishment for those who are doing wrong, but he's also a God who will come and deliver and save. His people. I love what um, hope is restored through. And I want to go to my point number one. Hope is restored through, number one, God's righteous wrath. You know, God is a God who will restore hope in our world. But it begins with God's righteous wrath. And that's kind of a weird thing, right, to think about. That wrath restores hope. Doesn't sound quite right sometimes when we think about it, but but when we really look at what God is saying, he's saying that my righteous wrath is what's needed in certain situations. And so he talks about it in the context of what's taking place on earth, but there's a spiritual reality of this righteous wrath too. And Isaiah talks about this. Listen to what Isaiah 53 says. Verse 5 and 6 says, But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him, has literally poured out his righteous wrath on him for the iniquity." The sins of us all. You see, God couldn't just be like, oh, you guys have all screwed up, you've all sinned, you've all offended a holy God. I'll just look the other way and let you into heaven. That isn't how it works. The God who is a righteous judge must righteously deal with sin, and all of us have sinned. And so for hope to be restored in our lives and in our situations, it had to begin with God pouring out his righteous wrath. But he chose instead of us to put his son in our place on a cross. And when Jesus came to the earth, he became the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He alone could pay the price Innocent before God, He took on our guilt and our shame and all the punishment that our sin deserved, and He bore it in His body on the cross. That's what the gospel is all about. That is what God's offer of peace with Him, right standing before Him, looks like. Because we can't have it on our own accord, we have to have it because of what Jesus has done for us. So, yes. Hope was restored, and it began with God's righteous wrath. Listen to what um, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. He made the one who did not sin, who did not know sin, to be sin for us. Who was that one that did not know sin? That was the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the great exchange that happened at the cross. He took all of our dirty, filthy rags, everything that our sins deserved. Upon himself, he bore the righteous wrath of God. Upon himself, he paid the ultimate price, death and separation from the Father so that you and I could have his perfect, righteous record. That is the substitutionary atonement of what the Lord Jesus has done for us on the cross. That is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to bear the weight of your own sins any longer. No matter what you've done, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. First Thessalonians Chapter 5, verse 9 and 10 says this, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake, whether we're still living when he appears, or whether we've fallen asleep, in other words, we've passed away, we will live together with him. So hope, yes, is restored through God's righteous wrath, but secondly, It's restored through genuine, repentant hearts. Continue with me and Joel, as we continue looking at Joel, starting in verse 12. We'll pick up in verse 12. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart. With fasting, weeping, and mourning, tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. And then he quotes from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. You remember Exodus? The context of Exodus was they had just worshipped the golden calf. They had just turned away from the God of their deliverance to idolatry. But God spared them and gave them a second chance. And he quotes and he says, For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in faithful love. And he relents from sending disaster. The prophet is saying, this is on the horizon. Judgment for Jerusalem is coming. But maybe he'll relent. He'll give us a season where that won't take place immediately. But it's dependent upon our response to God. It's dependent upon our response to our sin and our guilt and our shame. Are we willing to say, God, I've been wrong? Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. He doesn't want just an hour repentance. He wants it to come from the heart. You can't fool God. God knows whether or not you are truly repentant. Whether you truly are saying, I've been going this way, but I'm going to stop and I'm going to turn and I'm going to go this way. He knows. You can't fool him. He wants your heart to be torn. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so that you can offer grain and wine to the Lord, your God. That you can offer a blessing. Blow the horn in Zion. The shofar, the the horn was blown when it was time for battle. And that was talked about at the very verse verse 1 but it was also blown for a time of assembly and worship. And that is what's being referred to here in verse 15. Blow the horn in Zion, announce a sacred fast, proclaim an assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the children, even those nursing at the breast. Let the groom leave his bedroom and the bride her honeymoon chamber. This is the urgency of the matter. Of repentance before God it's not something to delay in you know that the, the men of Israel were allowed once they were married to take a year off from being a part of the army they were allowed to be with their wife for a year nobody could say hey you should be in battle nope I get a year off I just got married but you don't get even a year off you don't even get a day off from repenting your sins before God you should leave your bridal chamber It's such an urgent matter that, honey, this can wait. i got to get right with God. Let the priests, the Lord ministers, verse 17, weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? Where is their God? Hope is restored through God's righteous wrath. Hope is restored through genuine, repentant hearts. And the third thing, hope is restored through gracious, renewed life. Gracious, gracious renewed life. Verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and spared his people. How does the Lord respond to true repentance? with mercy, with grace, with forgiveness, with restoration. That's the response of our God to true rending of our hearts. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have to be real before God. We can't be phony. It has to be a true change of heart. But then the Lord became jealous for his land and spared his people. The Lord answered his people. He answered his people. Verse 19. Look, I am about to send you grain and new wine and olive oil. You will be satisfied with them, and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. I will drive the northerner far from you and banish him to a dry and desolate land. His front ranks into the Dead Sea, and his rear guard into the Mediterranean Sea. His stench will rise. Yes, his rotten smell will rise, for he has done catastrophic things. If this happened to be during Sennacherib's invasion, you can read about what God did in response to the Assyrian army, how God intervened miraculously through his angels, and destroyed the army, sent them into confusion, and totally threw them into the sea in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, 20 and 21, 2 Kings 19, 20 through 37, and Isaiah 37, 21 through 38. This may be what Joel is referring to here. We're not 100% sure, But it sure seems like God intervened miraculously on behalf of his people in that day, in that time. Verse 21, Don't be afraid, land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Don't be afraid, wild animals, for the wilderness pastures have turned green. The trees bear their fruit, and the fig tree and grapevine yield their riches. Do you remember what had happened after the locust plague? What had happened to the grapevine? It was stripped bare. What had happened to the fields? They were were desolate. And yet now there's a renewal taking place. The fig tree once again is producing fruit. And the grapevine is yielding its riches. God is a God of restoring hope. And restoring hope means a renewness, a newness that comes upon your life and upon your experience as you walk with him. Verse 23, children of Zion rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication. He sends showers for you, both autumn and spring rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and olive oil. This is a beautiful picture of God's restoration restore, I can't even say it, restorative process in our lives. You might be thinking to yourself, man, I've really blown it. I've dug myself a big hole. Nothing can ever get me out of it. You don't know my God because he can take what is broken. He can take ashes and he can turn them around for good and beauty and bring newness of life into your experience again. That's our God. That's what he desires to do as we give him our heart. We don't have to remain in the brokenness of our past. We can move forward in newness and renewal of life. Listen to what he says in verse 25. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locust, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust, my great army that I sent against you. This is a reversal of Joel chapter 1 verse 4. In Joel 1.4, it talks about just the opposite of that, how the the different parts of the locusts had destroyed the land. Now God is saying, I'm going to undo that, and I'm going to bring restoration to the land and to your experience. Verse 26, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of Yahweh your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame you will know that I am present in Israel and that I am Yahweh your God and there is no other. That was the future that God had promised them, the future that he had told them to trust him in. As we go to verse 28, Joel chapter 2, Verse 28, it says this. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. In those days, it's a beautiful picture of God's promise of his holy Spirit coming. for uh, Ezekiel 36 verse 26 says this: "I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate." Nope, that's not Ezekiel, is it? Um, sorry, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you." I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. God promises a new spirit that will come into his people. Verse 30 of Joel says this, I will display wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awe-inspiring day of the Lord comes. In this passage, it's basically describing the birth or the beginning of the church and what happens right as the church age comes up to a wrap, comes to a fulfillment. It's all-encompassing this period of time where God's Spirit will live among his people. We experience that right now in the church age. We have the privilege to have God's Spirit move in and dwell within us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go to Jerusalem and worship him at some building, do we? Even this building, there's nothing sacred about it other than it's a place for his temple that is in each one of us to come together and worship him together. That is who we are as his church This was fulfilled this, this idea was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 Peter Writes these words Acts chap, or He doesn't write them but he says these words In Acts chapter 2 verse 15 For these people are not drunk They have been accused When the Holy Spirit came down upon them As looking like they were drunk They were so full of joy And it was very early in the morning As you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. Verse 16, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet, who? Joel. That's what we're reading. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. God was faithful to pour out his spirit, and we are now in the time where we're in between verse 29 and verse 30. We await the end of this age. And how does this age end? Joel describes it. I will display wonders in the heavens and on earth blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awe-inspiring day of the Lord comes. We await the day of the Lord. We talked about at the outset of this message those seven characteristics of all that it entails. But we can be confident of this. God's grace is on his people. Amen? His protection is on those who choose to place their faith in the salvation that he's provided through his son Jesus Christ. Look at the last verse of Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Then anyone or everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised among the survivors, the Lord calls. There will be an escape. God is faithful to provide the escape. And the escape has a name. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for the book of Joel. We thank you for the message, the truth, that a day of the Lord is coming, a day of great hope. And God, that hope needs to be renewed in our experience. God, we need to understand that that day does begin with your righteous wrath. God, your righteous wrath will be poured out on all who are unrepentant of their sin. And I pray that, God, we don't know when that day begins, but it could begin today. It could begin tomorrow. God, I pray for anyone in this building that has not chosen to repent of their sin and to place their faith in your salvation, Jesus Christ that they might do so, God, that they don't have to face your righteous wrath, that Jesus took that righteous wrath in their place and instead gave them mercy and grace and new life. God, hope is restored through righteous wrath, but also through repentant hearts. Help us to have that repentant heart, no matter if we've known you for one day or for many years. God, if we're walking in a way that is not pleasing to you, help us to turn, turn back to you with a repentant heart. And God, we know that you will renew our fortunes. You will renew our lives as we place them into your hands because you're a God of great renewal, and we trust you in that. God, thank you for who you are and all that you've done. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.